stand to your feet with your Bibles in your hand as we are going to travel to the 17th Psalm. 17th Division of Psalm. Amen. This is one of the 73 Psalms that is attributed to David. Amen. We know that the Psalms are a collection of poems and a collection of songs. Majority written by David, but the others written by wonderful people of God. We're going to look at Psalm 17. I praise God for the Sunday school lesson this morning, uh, which really fired me up. Amen. Amen. And uh, if you all are missing out or not coming to Sunday school, you're missing out on a blessing. Amen. 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 A wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lesson today from the 63rd Psalm. Praise God for the men's class, the class that I was in this morning. They had great discussion around it. And uh, after meditating on this psalm for a few days, just for myself, for my own soul, uh, the Lord confirmed to me today that this is where we will be coming from. Uh, Psalms uh, 17, and the precious, authentic, inerrant, wholesome, holy, and wonderful word of God reads, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth would not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your past. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Here's the key verse. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity with their mouths. They speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to dare as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O God, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from the men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face. In righteousness, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Today we want to tag this text, the safest place in the world. Amen. The safest place in the world. You may be seated. 
in the presence of the Lord. Lord, God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Men aren't supposed to cry. Isn't that what the world tells us? Isn't that with what the images portray on, on, in the mass media that men are not supposed to cry? Anytime we see a cultural assumption, we ought to go to the word and see if there is a conflict with it. The Bible does not say that men are not supposed to cry. In fact, the Bible exemplifies or shows godly, macho, wonderful men crying all throughout. Look at the prophets. Go to Isaiah. You will see Isaiah weeping over the state of Israel. Look at Daniel. You'll see Daniel in tears as he's praying to the Lord his God. Look at Ezra. Ezra chapter 10, verse 1. Ezra is weeping and crying before the people. Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah is brought to tears as he sees and remembers the state of his hometown. Look at Paul as he writes to Timothy and tells Timothy that he is longing for him with tears. Acts, as Paul is ready to leave Ephesus, the Bible says that the elders wept for they knew that they would not see Paul again. The world tells us that men are not supposed to cry. But then we read in John chapter 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, that the most machoist of all men cries publicly. As it says, Jesus wept. But you know, I'm humbled when I look at David and I see David in verse one, praying to God, expressing himself to God, having almost an emotional breakdown to God. I see David crying and look at what it says. It says, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Men aren't supposed to cry, but let alone kings aren't supposed to cry. David is the king of Israel, and he is admitting to his people through song and through prayer that he is constantly crying before the Lord. He is constantly in a, a broken state before his God. Crying is not a sign of weakness. But crying, if you do it the right way and for the right reasons, it could be a sign of strength. The Bible says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. A lot of times we wonder, does God care about my emotions? Does God care about how I feel? 
Does the Lord see me crying? And even here today, there's someone who is weeping on the inside, crying on the inside. There's someone here today who has almost given up their their prayer life because their prayers have become so simple. Lord, help. And it seems like God is not vindicating you. It seems like your tears are in vain. May we be encouraged by this passage and remind ourselves that Christians, we do cry. And it's okay to cry. It's okay to vent. It's okay to be in emotional turmoil. When we look at the Psalms, David is is constantly crying before the Lord. He is constantly at a state of turmoil and a state of brokenness. He is constantly venting to the Lord. and, And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to be in a relationship with him as a child is in a relationship with their father, with their mother, with their parents. David here is crying to the Lord and to some men of his army, to some people who are under him. They may see this as weakness, but this is not weakness. This is humility. This is a man who understands who God is and who he is. This is a man who has everything that a man could want in his kingdom, but who realizes that everything without the presence of God is nothing. This is a man who who understands life, who understands his emotions, who who understands what what brokenness feels like. And this is a man who is crying to his father as an infant, is cries for their mother. He's crying for his father and he says, Father, attend to my cry. David is on the threshing floor. David is in a, a wilderness. And some of us in here, our hearts are in a wilderness and our our souls are at a threshing floor because God is trying to do something in us and he's allowing these trials and our tribulations to, to come our way in order that he could show, in order that he might show us who he really is. But when our souls is in a wilderness, when we are in turmoil, we must know who to turn to and we must know how to turn to them. Are you humble enough to cry? Man, are we humble enough to cry? Are we humble enough to to cry to the Lord and say, Lord, I am not wise enough. I am not strong enough to, to lead this family in the way that they should be led. Father, help me. Are we strong enough to cry and strong enough to admit that I'm not wise enough? I'm not I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not I'm not I'm not great enough, Father God, to do what you have called me to do. Do we run to the Lord in times of need, in times of desperation? Do we set aside time to pant after him as the deer pants after the water streams? I'm impressed with David. I am. I'm so impressed with that. Here is the king of Israel admitting in a song constantly throughout the the Psalms that God is his rock and his refuge. Here is a man who who has the material wealth that that most of us would want to dream of, who even though he has all of these things, is constantly saying, Lord, I love you. Oh, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my refuge. He is my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom is my salvation. I'm impressed with David. I'm impressed with David as I read in Psalm 63 this morning how he went to the Lord. 
Lord in prayer as his son Absalom was seeking his life and how he said, oh my God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. I'm impressed with David because even though David is seen as the greatest man in Israel, David understands that he does not have the power. Not just the power to deliver Israel from their enemies, but the power to deliver him from himself. What do you cry over? Last time you cried, what were you crying over? David not only cries over conflict with enemies, but we see in Psalm chapter 6, David cries over his sin. He weeps over his sin. He knows that he has done wrong by the Lord. And he says, oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for you, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Have you ever said that, Lord, how long? <laughs> Lord, how, how long do, do I have to struggle with this thing, with this it? And we've all got it's, that thorn in the side. When, when uh, Paul said, I prayed that he would remove it. We've all got some it's. We've all got some, uh, some of us got some employers that's our it, our thorn. Some of us, we have some spouses that's our thorn, amen. And we shouldn't be praying that God will remove them, but that God will remove our selfishness, Amen. Or their selfishness. Amen. I'm not going to get you in trouble this morning. <laughs> David was a crier. And God wants criers. But he doesn't want the type of person that's going to just necessarily cry to other people. He wants people who are going to cry to him. I'm fascinated by David in his text as he says to the Lord, he says, hear a just cause. We'll get to that in a second. Oh, Lord, attend to my cry. Now, why is David crying to the Lord? David is crying unto the Lord because David is in conflict. Look at verse nine. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. Look how he describes his enemy. Look at this simile that he uses. He is like a lion, eager to tear. As a young lion lurking in ambush, arise, O God, confront him. David, here is being pursued more than likely by Saul. We know that Saul uh, was the king of Israel before David, anointed by the people. And David was the soon-to-be king, uh, anointed by God. And David, because of his giftedness from God and because of his uh, 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 strength in war, we know, was being praised by people. Uh, David has, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. As a result of Saul's jealousy, David went on the run for his life. And now Saul is seeking to kill him. 
He's seeking to take him out. He's seeking to murder him. And I like what David said in verse 12. He is like, he is eager like a, a lion. He is seeking to devour David's soul. And who does David cry out to? Who does David go to? Who does he cry out to in conflict? When he, when his enemies is trying to, to sift him as wheat, he goes to the Lord. He cries to the Lord. I think there's a word in there for me and you. The first thing we want to recognize is that our enemy, Satan, is like a roaring lion. Satan is looking at you and me. He's looking at our lives and he is seeking to cause havoc and chaos. He is seeking to, to break us down. That Satan is seeking to break everybody down. Not just Christians, but non-Christians. He has set up his shop in this earth. And he wants us to be consumers of the mess that he has put out there. And he wants to break you down. He wants to see you give up. Satan is anti-God. If he could kill God, he would. But since he can't kill God, he's going to kill anything that resembles and looks like God. We, as humans, are created in God's image. And he uses the very things that God has called and that God has made good. And he seeks to pervert that and put his poison in it. And he waits until we take that bait and then he tries to destroy us. He lures us in. As the lion lures his prey in, he lures us in with advertisements and with commercials that are overly sexual and filled with pornography. He lures us in with a, a bottle that has the signature of one named Jack Daniels or some Alizé. He, he lures us in by, by telling us that this person is who we need and that if we could just have this person and if, if, if we could just, if me and this person love each other, then, then the world would, would uh, uh, nothing in the world could stop us. He, he lures us in by, by wanting us and, and trying to get us to, to put our refuge in something or someone else. And then he wants, once we have done that, he wants us to, to feel the guilt of not putting our refuge in God. Isn't that funny? How when we sin, or before we sin, we can come up with a million reasons why it is okay. But the moment we sin, the only voice we hear is the voice of guilt and condemnation. Isn't that how Satan works? Oh man, you don't. You don't have to wait till you marry, man. She's looking good, man. You a good person. You do more good than you do bad. It's all right, man. You a man. You gotta, you gotta release yourself. You gotta, gotta have a way out. Just satisfy yourself. He lures us in, and then when we fall to that temptation, we fall to that sin, man. You ain't no good. Man, you're a hypocrite. You don't love the Lord. You should just not go to church no more because you know that you're the only person in there that don't have it together. 
You should just hide your sin and cover it up. Maybe no one will ever know about it. Satan is a lion. He's a lion. He seeks to devour us. And our soul is constantly at conflict. And, and when our soul is at conflict, we have to know who to run to. We have to know who to cry out to. We have to know who we get our vindication from. David says, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Now, David cries because David has a conflict. But in this text, we see three things that David does that should encourage us when our soul is at conflict. Whether our soul is in conflict because of an employer, whether our soul is at conflict because of our personal sin, whether our, our soul is at, at conflict because of, of, of something that we're dealing with with our spouse or with our, our children, uh, we should know that God has called us to cry out to him. But we should also know and, and look at David's example and know that God has called us to behave with character. Look at verse 2. He says, we'll go back up to verse 1. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. David here is about to talk about his character. And he's going to talk about his character in a, a positive way. He says, from your presence, let my vindication come. He knows that his vindication is coming from the Lord. Let your eyes behold the right. He says, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man by the word of your lips. I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths and my feet have not slipped. David is at conflict. He's being chased by Saul. Saul is trying to murk him. Saul is trying to kill him. His life seems to be closing in on him. He cries out to the Lord. And what does he build his cry on? He builds his cry on the fact that he has been doing his best to keep the right character. David says, listen, Lord, I haven't been looking at worthless things. He says, listen, Lord, when you visited me at night, I, I was kept pure. He says, listen, Lord, I have not purposed that my mouth would not transgress. He says, I'm not using my tongue to, to tear down people and to, to gossip. He says, listen, Lord, my steps are, are, are holding fast to the path that you have put in front of me. Now, when I first read this, I thought to myself, well, lucky you. Lucky you, David. <laughs> David, you are crying out to the Lord and you're saying to the Lord that my cause is just and then you're able to tell the Lord that you have done everything right. I said, David, most people aren't like you. But David here is not saying that when we go to the Lord that we need to go to the Lord and tell the Lord how perfect we are. But David is reflecting upon the fact that he has made a resolution and his resolution is to do his best to represent God and to keep his character in line with God's will. A lot of times we don't cry out to the Lord because of guilt and because of shame. A lot of times we don't cry out to the Lord because we know that 
Many times we, we haven't kept ourselves pure. We haven't kept ourselves in the, the line of, of, of walking that, that, that straight, narrow path. And I don't believe that David here is boasting to the Lord because David is a broken person. He's often throughout the Psalms a, a humble person. In fact, we get our theology of sin from David. David said we are shaped. And, and while we are in our mother's womb, we are our sinners. We come out as sinners. Psalms 51. David understands that we, by nature, are sinners. David knows that. David knows that he even writes. He says, there is none who is righteous. No, not one. And Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 3. So David here is not boasting about how sinless he is. He's not boasting about how perfect he is. David is boasting about a resolution that he made. David resolved, he resolved to do his best. To please the Lord by keeping his character blameless or, or holding character. In Psalms 101, we see David making this resolution. Psalms 101, David resolves. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? Look, he's crying again. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful of the land. Then he goes on to say, morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. David had resolved in his heart to do his best. To glorify God with his life. And now David is in dire need. David's life is in shambles. He is this close to death as the king of Israel is chasing him. Is, and, and all of his men is surrounding him. And he cries out to the Lord and he says, Lord, hear my just cause. Lord, I resolved in my heart to glorify you with my life. He says, Lord, so vindicate me. You know, God has not called us to be perfect. Meaning that he knows that we will sin and that we will fall short. But the word does say that we should strive. That we should do our, our best to present ourselves to God in the right way. That we should make some resolutions in our lives to say, Lord, I resolve that my body is not my own and that you can have my body. Lord, I resolve that my life is not my own and that you can have my life. Lord, I resolve that my money is not my own and you can have my money. 
Lord, I resolve that my family is not my own and you can have my family. God wants us to be able to make resolutions, meaning that he wants us to be able to have a mindset of being prepared so that when temptations come, we have made a resolve. I will not sleep with you because we are not married. And I'm not going to not sleep with you just for no whimsical reason, but I'm not going to sleep with you because God has better for both of us. God has better for both of us. God desires us to be pure. You know, I was at home in uh, Chicago, and I was talking to my younger sister. And uh, before I got home, I just was meditating the week before on uh, just Satan's sexual prowlessness and how his desire is for us to be confused and messed up sexually. And how he wants to pervert sex and intimacy. And I began to think about how, in my life, how I did not have the talk about sex until I was pretty much going to college. And I began to think about how many parents are nervous to talk to their kids about it. And educate their kids about it. And then I begin to think about, about how the church, about how we have made this subject off limits. In fact, as I said, there's somebody cringed. And someone thought, we're not supposed to be talking about sex in church. Have you read the songs of Solomon? <laughs> Solomon was not talking about just regular worship, corporate worship. Try to spiritualize that all you want to. He wasn't talking about agriculture. It's a metaphor. And I began to look at my sister and I told her. And I began to talk to her about sex. I began to tell her how you need to resolve now that you are going to do your best to keep yourself pure. I tell her about how Satan has set this thing up so that that everything that you see on television is, is geared towards this subject, that you can't even buy mouthwash. <laughs> mouthwash. Can't even buy cheese without seeing somebody's leg all the way out. Think to yourself, I wonder what this commercial's about. Sharp cheddar cheese makes your life better. see a shampoo commercial, you might as well just turn it off. You can have a shampoo commercial. I mean, they can make a shampoo commercial without showing someone showering. But Satan has figured out. Sex is attention getter. Sex is something that most people have a problem with because they have not been taught how to have control over themselves. And he preys on us. And I begin to tell her that we you need to start looking at yourself as a wife now. We wait too late. We, we, we wait too late to start talking to our children about marriage and being a wife. Begin to talk to her about how if you're going to, to be a, a, a wife, you need to view yourself as a wife now. You need to prepare yourself for your husband now. We need to tell our four-year-old girls that they are future wives. And if they're not a future wife, then they're, 
they're, they're in the future that they have still been called to keep themselves pure before the Lord. Begin to talk to her about that. To tell her about that God is not evil. God has not given us all these hormones and bottled them up in us for as a cosmic joke. And then making rules telling us what we can't do. But that God has our best intent and our best in mind. That he knows that if we are promiscuous, that if we give ourselves to another person, that we are giving a part of our soul away, so to speak. He knows that we are, are, are creating a soul tie there. He knows that our relationships get extremely complex. And he knows that the other person, because they've gotten that from you, is more likely to lead you on until they uh, have used you all up. I asked her, I said, do you, do you hate? What do you think of when you think of a cheater? What do you think of when you think of a, a, a girl cheating on her boyfriend or a boy treating, cheating on his girlfriend? Or what do you think when you hear about a husband uh, committing adultery or a wife committing adultery? She says, I'm upset. I said, why? She says, because no one's like cheaters. I said, exactly, no one likes cheaters. I said, but even as a single person, as a person who is not married, when the Lord speaks of, of fornication, in the same sense, it's a very close word to the word adultery because we are not our own. We are the Lord's. Our body belongs to him. When we give ourselves outside of the covenant of marriage, we cheat on two people. We cheat on God and we cheat on our future spouse. And Satan will remind you of that every chance he gets, he will condemn you of that. He will bring guilt into your life. He will, he will confuse you in such a way to where you are with the person whom you now have found in the Lord, that he is constantly pushing that in your mind and, and reminding you of what once was. I said, having sex before marriage is like giving a 13-year-old a Corvette or a, a convertible and allowing them to drive on the street. The only thing that's going to end up out of it is, 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 is chaos and pain. And I'm using this as an illustration because it's not just with sex, but it's with any area of our lives that we have not resolved to give to the Lord. If we have not resolved to give our hearts in an area of our life to the Lord, it is an area where Satan is lurking and Satan desires to come in, to corrupt and to destroy. And David in his text is saying, I have resolved. He says, I resolved to do this. I've resolved to do this. I've resolved. This is the type of person I'm going to be for you, Lord. And God is looking for some people who are willing to make some resolutions. Lord, I resolve that I will not look upon uh, 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 this, uh, upon something that is worthless. Lord, I resolve that I will not put myself in a situation where alcohol is my refuge. I resolve, Father God, that I will not allow myself to, to worship another person. Lord, I resolve that I will not do this. And then when we have resolved that we will not do that, when we cry to the Lord, we can come to the Lord with confidence, not saying, Lord, I I'm perfect, but Lord, I'm yours. See, Satan wants us to not make resolutions. He wants us to get to a place where we are just living uh, uh, minute by minute and second by second in a place where it's whatever happens. 
And then when we get to that place of whatever happens and we are in dire need of deliverance, then he wants to tell us that we are not God's child because we did this. And David is saying, Satan, I'm not going to allow you to get me like that. I have resolved in my heart to worship the Lord. I have resolved that he is mine and that I am his. Now, that doesn't always work. It doesn't always work because we fall short. God is a God of justice, but God is also a God of justification. God is a God who says that we should not do, and if we do, pain may come as a result. But in the New Testament, through Christ, we know that we have justification, that when we do fall short, that we have an advocate in Christ, that we have a covering in Christ, that we have a high priest in Christ, that we can look at Satan as Paul does in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and says there is now therefore no condemnation. And we can stand and say, because I am the Lord's. I am under his refuge. That's exactly what David is doing. David has a conflict. David cries out to the Lord. David reminds God, Lord, I am yours. But then he turns the focus from himself and he puts it back on God. Look at what he says. Verse 6, I call upon you. I call upon you, Lord. For you will answer me, O God. Why will you answer me, O God? Because of what he just said. Because I am yours. He says, incline your ear to me, hear my words, hear my words, Lord. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David cries out to the Lord, and, and after he cries out to the Lord, he comes confidently to the Lord because he knows his character is in a place where he can do that. Then David says to the Lord, he says, Lord, my confidence is in you. My confidence is in you. And what does he call him? He says, oh, Savior. Oh, Savior. God is our Savior. I don't know what you're running from. I don't know what your issue is. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what your shortcomings is, what, what bones you have in your closet. I know that God can be your refuge. I know that God is a, is a savior. I know that God is able to, to deliver you, able to pull you out. I know that God is waiting on you to cry out to him and to come out to him and say, Lord, deliver me. Lord, save me. Maybe it's not an adversary. Maybe it's yourself. Sometimes I find myself just crying to the Lord, Lord, save me from me. Save me from myself. Save me from my attitude. Save me from my lust. Save me from, from my past. Save me, Father. I'm crying out to you. I, I'm begging out to you. I, I, I am earnestly seeking you, Father God. I can find refuge in nothing or no one else, Father. Save me. And look how David responds. He knows that God is his God. He is confident that he's his God. And he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Isn't that something? David has the confidence in the midst of turmoil to know that his turmoil is not a result of God not loving him. Many times in our turmoil, we think that God has forsaken us because of something, because of our imperfections. 
But as Christians, we must know that God does not forsake his children. He may chastise us, but he does not forsake us. David cries, he says, Lord, keep me as the apple of your eye. This term, apple of your eye, is a, is a term that is often used by the Hebrews. And it was used by uh, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32 around a 10th or 11th verse. And that word, apple of your eye, it was a, a way to describe the pupil of your eye. He's just basically saying, Lord, keep me as the pupil of your eye. Meaning, keep me as the one whom you are all consumed with. Isn't that something that David says uh, in the midst of his turmoil, in the midst of his trial, he says, Lord, I'm your child. Keep me as the apple of your eye. He has confidence that to God, that that he means the world to God. And we have to have confidence as believers in the midst of conflict that we mean the world to God. That we mean the world to God. Bosses on you. World seems to be falling apart. Calamity has come upon you. Go before the Lord with boldness. Cry before him with confidence. Remind yourself that you are the apple of God's eye. And as New Testament Christians, why are we the apple of God's eye? Not because I've got it all together. Not because I'm perfect, not because I have it all worked out. I'm the apple of God's eye because I believe in the one who truly is the apple of God's eye. I have put myself in the arms of Christ. I am now a part of his body. I have been purchased by his blood. I have been ransomed from the father's wrath. He paid my debt. And as a result, I can come before the throne of God boldly with assurance. And I can say, Father, I know I'm a mess, but Father, deliver me from this. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Help me to persevere. Help me to make it through. David had confidence in God's vindication of him. David knew he wasn't perfect. Even as David makes his Tiger Woods sin. Or when Tiger Woods made David sin, amen. Even when uh, David acts like O.J. Simpson, he still has confidence in God. Psalms 51, he pours out, he cries out to God, Lord, deliver me, Lord, keep me, Lord, Created me a clean heart. Psalm 63 is written after David's sin and yet he is talking to the Lord as if his sin had never happened because David knew that God had justified him. He knew that his relationship with God was not based upon his own righteousness but it was based upon his presence of God being his covenant God. Satan wants to tell you that you're condemned. He wants to tell you that the reason why calamity is coming your way, the reason why your adversaries is, is drawing in on you is because of your imperfections. He wants to remind you of your adultery, remind you of your abortion, remind you of your stealing, remind you of your lying, remind you of your fornication. And you have to remind him, I am in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I may have murdered, but I am not a murderer. I may have committed abortion, but 
but I am not an abortionist. I may have committed fornication, but I am not a fornicator. I have been bought by God. I have been redeemed. I am his. And guess what, Satan? I am the apple of his his eye. Isn't that something? Isn't God good? Isn't God merciful? Isn't God gracious? Who can fathom his faithfulness? Who can fathom his his headset, his his steadfast love that that he allows us to come before him daily with confidence as if our past doesn't exist. The Bible says that he... (laughs) Remembers our sins no more. He throws it in a sea of forgetfulness. Now God is great. God is perfect. God cannot forget. It's an anthropomorphic term, which means to give human qualities to a, 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 a God who does not, who cannot be given human qualities. But what the writer is trying to say, that God is so good, he's so merciful, that when we come to him and when we ask him for forgiveness, that he chooses not to bring our sins up against us. That is so wonderful. That is so beautiful. That is our reason, a reason why we should praise him, a reason why we should glorify him. The Bible says that it's great. And his mercy is new every morning. I don't care what Satan says. If you truly are a child of God and you cry out to the Lord, if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Turmoil through your trials, through your pain, you can come to him with confidence and say, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me, Father. David has character. He's made some resolutions. He's thought about his walk with the Lord. He says, I'm not going to do this. And even when he does it, he comes to the Lord, not on his own righteousness, but on the righteousness that he knows that God is going to give. David, in crying out to the Lord, has confidence in what God can do. But David also sees comfort in the Lord. Verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. David cries out to the Lord and he has comfort. He knows that the battle is not his. David is a a military strategist. David is used to war. David could have came to the Lord and said, Dave, Lord, give me a plan so that I can kill him. Give me a plan so that I can pay them back. Give me a plan so that I can, I can vindicate my name. But David does not. David says, Lord, this is your battle. Lord, you confront him. Lord, you take out my adversary. When you're a child of God, you understand that the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. You have comfort in the fact that God is going to confront your adversary. The person who is constantly belittling you, that person who is constantly trying to treat you as if you are less than, that person who is constantly trying to break you down, that's not your battle. It's the Lord's battle. But only a humble person would recognize that the battle is not theirs. Only a person who is crying out to the Lord and who has submitted themselves to to God's plan is comfortable enough to say, Lord, you fight my battle. 
to verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. David uses terminology that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 32 by Moses. He says, Lord, hide me in your wings. Protect me as an eagle protects his children. Isn't that something for someone who defeated Goliath to say? Isn't that something for someone who defeated the surrounding nations to say? Isn't that something that the most machoist man in Israel is not standing on his macho-ness, is not standing on his strength, but is standing in the wings of the Lord? Isn't that something that David has enough sense to know that when I beat Goliath, it wasn't I who beat Goliath, but it was you who beat Goliath? Isn't that something that David knows that when I was the one who protected my sheep from the lion and from the bear, that it was not I who was protecting my sheep but it was the Lord who was protecting my sheep in the midst of your trials in the midst of your turmoil you need to slap yourself and give yourself some common sense and remind yourself that you have never fought your own battle that it was always the Lord that was fighting for you it was always the Lord that was keeping you when you made it through we have to remind ourselves that our strength is not in ourselves but our strength is without ourselves it is in Christ in Christ alone so I love what Paul says in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, when he says, uh, if then you have been rise, ro- uh, rose with, if then you have rose with Christ, seek the things that are above and not the things that are below. Set your mind on the things that are on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says, seek the things that are above, not the things that are below, for you have died. When Christ died, you died. And you have to remind Satan that often, Satan, I've already died. I've already been judged. I was judged over 2,000 years ago when Christ was judged. My sins have already been forgiven. I am now hidden in Christ. It's this picture of a, a wing of an eagle hiding its youth. I love going back home to Chicago, talking to, spending time with my youngest sister who's 13. I do. Growing up, I had another sister. Me and her, we would constantly just play, fight, and run around the house. When my youngest sister was born, she was chasing me and my sister. I was in high school, probably about a a sophomore in high school, and she was chasing us around the living room. And I jumped over a chair to get over my oldest, to get away from my oldest sister. And I slipped on a piece of paper, and I slid into the wall. And all of a sudden, I was sitting in the wall. I was sitting in the wall. And my younger sister said, ooh. I tell him, mama. And she ran upstairs. Went to tell my parents. I'm not going to tell you what happened after that. But you know, one thing about my sister is I realize that she is young and that she doesn't have anyone that she's growing up with who can just test her and try her and pick on her. So every time I come home, I play pranks on her. I mean, some crazy pranks. But you know, this last time I was at home, I was just tickling her to death. She was crying, crying out for mama. She got up, got away. She hid behind my mother, couldn't see her. She clutched her, my mother clutched her fist. And said, you better not touch her. I know when my mother's playing. And I know when she's serious. My sister had enough sense to know who to hide behind. 
She had enough sense to know where her refuge was. She had enough sense to know how to get away. Oh, this psalm is calling us to have enough sense to know who to run to and how to get away. David says, in times of trouble, Father God, I run and I hide under your wings. And somebody in here needs to just hide behind their father and stop trying to fight the battle and look at Satan and say, Satan, I am safe. I am behind my father's shelter under his protection and he will protect me. It's interesting that David then brings up how wealthy the rich is. Right after he talks about the shadow and after he talks about being the apple of the eye, after he tells God to confront his enemies, he boasts on what his enemies has. He says, Lord, look at these men. These men have all that they could have in this life. You fill their womb. You allow them to have children. You satisfy them. And they're able to leave money with their children's children. And you would think that David is using this to complain against God and to say why. But David's not. David has a kingdom perspective. David is comfortable with where God has him right now in this text. David responds and says, but as for me, even though it seems like they have it going on, even though it seems like they're wealthy and it seems like they're blessed, he says, as for me, as if to say, I'm not going to focus on what they have and what I don't have right now. As for me, I'm not going to focus on how it seems like they're having all the fun and partying. As for me, he says, listen, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake I shall be satisfied with your likeness David says as for me father in the midst of this situation instead of gloating and being jealous about what's going on in somebody else's life I'm going to focus on your promise of eternity David said I am one day going to see your face isn't that something God has called us to live with an as for me attitude father I may be going through but as for me father the wealthy may seem to be getting richer but as for me father it seems like everything's going on over on that side even though they're not serving you but as for me as for me my hope is not in this treasure of this earth my hope is not in the wealth of this earth my hope is not in in, in balling or having bling bling as for me my hope is to one day see your face and that's what God is looking for some people in the midst of crying out some people in the midst of their tribulation who can stop and say hold up wait a minute this may this is just a part of life this is not eternal life as for me one day i am going to behold your beauty one day i am going to behold your glory one day i'm going to stand before you face to face in the midst of the drama as for me i know that life is not about this is not the best part of life but life my real life is still to come David had an eternal perspective a perspective that John had in Revelation chapter 22 verse 4 even though Jesus he has seen the Lamb of God and he has seen all of these wonderful pictures of God he says they ask for me he says one day I will see him face to face and I don't know about you but that's what I'm, I get excited about some 
Sometimes this world can weigh us down. Sometimes the trials and tribulations of this world can get us depressed. But if we cry out to God, if we check our character and remind ourselves of who we are in God, if we find our comfort under the refuge of God, and if we remind ourselves that one day we're going to be with God, we'll be able to make it. Stop putting your trust in things on this earth and put your trust on the one who is coming back. Need I remind you that the Bible says that he is is coming back. The word promises us. He says, even though I'm, I'm leaving, I will return. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your tribulations, remind yourself that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to relieve us from all of our problems. Jesus is going to relieve us from our baby mama drama. Jesus is going to relieve us from LG&E. Jesus is going to relieve us from our car notes. Jesus is going to relieve us from ourselves. But most of all, Jesus is going to relieve us from our sins. I can't wait to that day. When I stand before the Father and I no longer have that old sin nature, that old man is no longer around, I can't wait to the day where God gives me a, a new mind, a new spirit, where I no longer will sin against him. As for me, I am going to seek to please the Lord despite of what I'm going through, in spite of my situation. I am going to set my, head, my face into, into heaven and remind myself that Jesus is returning. As for me, Joshua said, in my house, we will serve the Lord. It may look like they have it going on in their house. But as for me and my house, we're going to worship the Lord. Even though the culture is going this way. As for me and my house, even though things are looking to be going blessed on this side. As for me and my house, even though the grass looks greener on the other side. As for me and my house. Because God is going to one day confront them. He's going to one day call them out. He's going to one day wipe away their blessings. And then that's when I'm going to really be blessed. I'm going to receive a mansion that have not been made with human hands. I'm going to receive a blessing that will not corrode or be taken away. I'm going to receive a song that the angels are singing. And I'm going to sing to the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm so glad that I am the apple of his eye. Despite my sins, I'm the apple of his eye. Despite my troubles, I'm the apple of his eye. All because I chose to serve Jesus. And all because he chose to love me. Ain't that amazing that Jesus chose to love you? Ain't that amazing? That Jesus chose to give you mercy? Don't you know where you used to be? And how you used to act? And how you used to look? And how you used to think? The fact that he would even want to come close to me. And yet he loves me. He keeps me. He watches over me. He provides for me. He protects me. He regulates my mind. He gives me strength when I'm weak. I can't help but to praise him because he's been so good to me. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. You ought to praise him. 
You ought to magnify him. You ought to glorify him. You ought to exalt him. You ought to let him know how much he means to you.